Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Yes, this is Melissa Kentola, and what I got for you today, this is from Beginner Ministries with uh, R.C. Swirl, and this is called The Holiness and Justice, oh, it's called Holiness and Justice, The Holiness of God with R.C. Swirl. Here on Truth Be Told Radio. If we look at the period of the 18th century in the American frontier, we notice that there was a recurring motif during the Great Awakening in the preaching that was found at that time. And there was a sort of a dual emphasis. On the one hand, the, the message of the preachers was that man is very, very, very bad. And that God is very, very, very mad. In other words, there was such an emphasis on the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God that uh, almost what some have called a scare theology that dominated that period. And then in the 19th century, we saw a dramatic reaction against that kind of accent in preaching. So that now the message was, well, man's not quite so bad and and uh, God's not really quite so mad. And there the emphasis was upon the love of God and the, the goodness of man. Well, at the turn of this century, the beginning of the 20th century, there was a response to that reaction on the continent in the world of theology with the advent of a theology called crisis theology. And it was called crisis theology because it borrowed the term from the from the Greek word krisis, which means judgment. And these theologians on the continent said that if we're going to take seriously the biblical portrait of God, we must once again take seriously what the Bible says about the wrath of God. Now, there were some extremists in that group who said that what we see in the scriptures particularly in the Old Testament at certain times and places, is an expression of something that is irrational in the character of God himself. In other words, they said this, yes, we do see unavoidably and unmistakably a manifestation of the anger of God in the pages of the Old Testament. But that anger is not so much a manifestation of God's righteousness or of his holiness as it is a manifestation of a defect within God's own character. Believe it or not, I've I've read some theologians that speak about the shadow side of Yahweh, saying that there resides within God the element of the demonic. And this demonic aspect of God shows itself, displays itself by sudden, unprovoked manifestations of a whimsical, capricious, arbitrary anger. Some of the passages that are in view would include... uh, a narrative that we read in the book of Leviticus, which I'll read briefly for you. At the beginning of the 10th chapter of Leviticus, we read this account. Now, Arabs, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers and put fire in them and added incense, And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, in this understated, terse description of the death of the sons of Aaron, 
it, it seems to indicate for us an example of this swift and capricious manifestation of God's wrath. When I read this, I, I, I try to read between the lines, and I ask myself, how did Aaron react to all of this? Imagine it. You remember earlier in the scriptures the elaborate ceremony that God ordained when he consecrated Aaron as the high priest of Israel. How God ordered the minute details of the design of the garments that were to be worn by the high priest that were designed for glory and for beauty. And then we can imagine how Aaron felt when he saw his own sons consecrated to the priesthood. And here are these young priests who they do something that we're not exactly sure what it was, but somehow they came to the altar and they did as young clergy will often do, try a little experimentation, innovation, play little uh, almost adolescent-type pranks as they're fooling around in their job and in the sense of immaturity, and without warning and without rebuke, as they offer this strange fire in the altar, wham, God strikes them dead instantly. Can you hear Aaron? He goes to Moses and he says, what's going on here? What kind of a God is it that we serve? I'm devoting my entire life to the ministry and to the service of Yahweh. And what are the thanks that I get? Like that, he takes my son for a small transgression. What kind of a God is this? Listen to what Moses said. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be regarded as holy. And in the sight of all of the people, I will be honored. And then we read these words. And Aaron held his peace. You better believe Aaron held his peace. When the Almighty Consignment said, look, Aaron, I know that this is crushing to you that I have taken the lives of your sons, but do you remember when I established the priesthood? Do you remember the day I set you apart and consecrated you for that holy task? that I said that there are certain principles I will not negotiate with my priests. I will be regarded as holy from any by anyone who dares to presume to minister in my name. And before the people, I will be treated with reverence. And when God spoke, Aaron shut up. There are other cases like that, aren't there? One of the the most blood-curdling stories in the Old Testament is the story of Uzzah, the Kohathite. You all know the story of Uzzah. You tell it to your father, you to, no, that's, that's a, about a bear. It's the story of the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. It was the most sacred vessel in the holy of holies and it had fallen into the hands of the philistines and then through a series of amazing incidents it had been returned to the jewish people and kept in safekeeping for a while until it was the appropriate time had come to pass for the ark of the covenant to be restored to its place in the sanctuary and david ordered a celebration and called for the ark of the covenant to be transferred into the city and the people lined the streets, and they danced, and they sang as they moved and saw the procession of God's throne before them. And we are told that the Ark of the Covenant is transported 
by virtue of being placed in an ox cart. And the Bible tells us that as the cart was moving down the road, the Kohathites were walking along beside it, protecting it, watching over it, one whose name was Uzzah. And in the midst of the procession, suddenly one of the oxen stumbled, and the cart began to teeter and to tilt, and it looked as if this holy vessel of Israel was about to slide from the ox cart and fall into the mud and be desecrated. And so instinctively, involuntarily, Uzzah stretched forth his hand to steady the ark to make sure that this throne of God would not fall into the mud. And what happened? The heavens opened, and a voice came down saying, Thank you, Uzzah. Now, as soon as Uzzah touched the holy ark of God, God struck him dead. I remember reading a Sunday school curriculum in one of the denominations I used to work with. came from our headquarters, and I looked at passages like this, and it said, now, we understand that these kinds of stories that we read in the Old Testament, like Uzzah and Nadab, like God's destroying the whole world with a flood, men, women, and children, of God ordering the harem, telling the Jewish people to go into the land of Canaan and to slaughter all of the inhabitants of Canaan, men, women, and children, that this can't possibly be a manifestation of the real character of God. But we have to understand these stories in the Old Testament simply as ancient, primitive, pre-scientific, semi-nomadic Jewish people who interpreted the events that they saw in light of their own peculiar theology. Probably what happened was that Uzzah had a heart attack, and he died, and the, and the Jewish writer attributed the cause of his death to an unmerciful expression of this vicious wrath of God. In other words, it was unthinkable to the authors of this curriculum that God himself could actually have anything to do with the death of Uzzah. Yet if we look carefully at the Old Testament and see the history of the Kohathites, I think the answer is made apparent to us. You remember that in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel were given certain tasks and certain allotments of the land, and the tribe of Levi was set apart from God as the family that would be responsible for the priesthood and the matters of the, of the temple and of education and so on. And Levi was the tribe, and within that tribe of Levi, there were certain other major families, and each family was given a particular fast. Now, Kohath was one of the sons of Levi, and the family of Kohath, were separated by God for a specific task. Their job, their whole reason for being, their life's vocation was to take care of the sacred vessels. And they were trained and disciplined from children with all of the prescriptions and the meticulous details of the law of God about how these sacred objects and vessels were to be treated. And the one absolute non-negotiable principle that every Kohathite had drummed into him from the time he was a child was this, never, 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 ever touch the throne of God. And God said, if you touch it, you die. First place, we wonder why in the world the ark was being transported in an ox cart. It was to be transported on foot. There were loops the edge of the throne through which staves were inserted to make sure that no human hand touched that throne. But instead they were in a hurry, and they put it in the ox cart, and they're going down, and Uzzah did the unthinkable. He touched the throne of God. Oh, so they said, wait a minute. Why did he do it? His motive was pure. He was trying to preserve the throne of God from being desecrated by the mud. But the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this, ladies and gentlemen. He assumed that his hands 
were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God has called earth to do, being dirt, turning to dust when it's dry and turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the laws of God day in and day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was the hand of man that God said, I don't want on this hill. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God, and God killed him. But still it seems, doesn't it, that this is a manifestation of cruel and unusual punishment. If you look, for example, in the Pentateuch and, and, and see the list of capital crimes that are set forth in Israel, there are over 30 offenses for which God commanded the death penalty among the Jews. Not only for first-degree murder, but for homosexual acts, for adultery. If a child was unruly in public and, and sassed his parents, he could be put to death. It was a capital crime for a Jewish person to go to a fortune teller. Over 30 offenses, God ordained that people should be killed. And again, the theologians look at that and they say, how primitive, how bloodthirsty, how severe. That can't possibly be the word of God, particularly in light of the New Testament spirit of mercy and love. One of the fascinating chapters or footnotes of church history is the historical incident that provoked the formal compilation of the Bible as the canon of sacred scripture. Remember, this is a book that's made up of many separate books, 20-some books in the New Testament. These individual epistles and gospels that were written very early were circulated in the early church and were recognized as scripture and functioned as scripture, but nobody bothered to put them together in one binding and said, this is the Bible, until a man by the name of Marcion came along and produced the first formal edition of the Bible, the first canon of Holy Scripture. It was a very strange canon. The Old Testament was absent, and most of the gospel materials was absent, and just a few Remarks from the Apostle Paul were comprised in this canon because Martian's working principle was this, that any reference to the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, couldn't possibly be sacred scripture because Jesus in the New Testament reveals a different deity from that explosive, hot-tempered, ill-willed deity that thunders from Sinai in the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered about this? I hear it today all the time. There are Marcians all over the place saying to me, well, I like the New Testament, but that God of the Old Testament is more than I can handle. When we compare the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Testament seems severe. I've had help in dealing with this from the, of the writings of a, of a very important theologian who's very controversial in the Roman Catholic Church. His name is Hans Kuhn. In one of his earlier and most important writings, written in German under the title Rechtfertigung, translated in English under the title Justification, Dr. Kuhn deals with this very question of the seeming injustice of God's wrath that we find in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. And he makes this point. He said, you know, the real mystery of iniquity, the real puzzle is not that a holy and righteous God should exercise justice. What is mysterious about a holy creator punishing willfully disobedient creature? He said the real mystery is why God 
through generation after generation after generation tolerates rebellious creatures who commit cosmic treason against his authority. Do you ever think of it like that? And Kung goes on to say this. He said, remember that even though there are 30-some capital offenses in the Old Testament, that doesn't represent a cruel and unusual form of justice at the hands of God. It already represents a massive reduction in the number of capital crimes. He said, remember the rules that were set forth at creation. When God, the omnipotent ruler of heaven and earth, breathed into dirt the breath of life and shaped a creature in his own image and gave that creature the highest status in this planet and the greatest blessing and gift that he owed them, not at all, the very gift of life, and stamped his holy image on that piece of dirt, gave them life. He said, the soul that sins shall die. All sin was viewed in creation as a capital offense. And not that this punishment would be death sometime after you've had your three score and ten. But what are the terms of creation? The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I know people look at that and they say that what the text is saying there is that the day the transgression takes place, we suffer spiritual death. That's not what God said. That may be true, that man suffered spiritual death the day he transgressed the law of God. But the, but the terms of creation were the day that you eat, you die biologically. It's over. Now, is there anyone who could convict a holy, perfectly righteous creator who out of sheer mercy creates a creature, gives him all of this blessing? Is there anything wrong with that God extinguishing a creature who has the audacity to challenge God's authority to rule his creation? Have you ever stopped to consider what is involved in the slightest sin? In the slightest sin, beloved, I am saying that my will has a right that is higher than the rights of God. It terrifies me in our culture that people do things like abortion and say they have the moral right to do it. If I know anything about God, I know God never has given anyone the moral right to do something like that. And I shudder to think of what will happen when a person stands before God and said, I had the right to do that. Where did you get that right? In the slightest sin, never mind a heinous sin like abortion, in the slightest sin, what we would call a peccadillo. In that thing, I defy the authority of God. I insult the majesty of God. I challenge the justice of God. But we are so accustomed to doing that and so careful to justify our disobedience that we have become recalcitrant in our hearts, our consciences have been seared. And we think it no serious matter to disobey the king of the universe. I call it cosmic treason. But what God did with this, as Dr. Cohen points out, he says that instead of destroying mankind in the moment of that act of revolt and rebellion against God's authority, God reached forth and extended his mercy. Instead of just, he poured out his grace. 
And the history of the Old Testament, beloved, is the history of repeated episodes of the manifestation of God's gracious forbearance and merciful forgiveness towards a people who disobey him day in and day out. And Kung speculates. He said, I granted, I don't know the secret counsel of God. I can't read the deity's mind. But he said, I wonder if what it is that why we find periodically in Scripture this swift and sudden exercise of justice. Perhaps God finds it necessary to interrupt his normal path of long-suffering, forbearing, grace, and mercy to remind us of his justice. Himself complains that his forbearing mercy is designed to give us time to repent. But instead of repenting, we exploit it. And we come to think that God doesn't care if we sin, or even if he does care, there's nothing he can do about it. I saw a young man once defy God, screaming to the heavens, if you're up there, strike me dead. Challenging the Almighty like that. I didn't want to look. But I saw his dead body the next day, and I'll never forget it. But ladies and gentlemen, we become so accustomed to God's normal pattern of grace and mercy that we not only begin to take it for granted, we begin to assume it, we begin to demand it, and then if we don't get it, we're furious. This morning I spoke at Dallas Theological Seminary. I spoke of a passage on the New Testament where Jesus spoke to this very theme, and I used my favorite illustration of it. When I was a young college teacher, I had the task of teaching 250 freshmen in a college, Introduction to the Old Testament. And on the first day of class, I had to give out the assignments, and I had to be very careful about what the requirements were because they'll twist them any way they can to get out from them. And I said, look, we have just a few little term papers here, uh, three to five pages or two to four pages with short little papers. I said, four of them, if you don't turn them in on time, you get an F for the assignment, unless you're confined in the infirmary or a death in the immediate family, you had to spell out a lot of them. So does everybody understand? Oh, yes, we agree. First one's due September the 30th. September the 30th, 225 students diligently came forward with their term paper. 25 of the students were standing there shivering and shaking in fear, and they said, oh, Dr. Spall, we didn't get our papers done. We didn't budget our time. We didn't make the transition from high school to college. Please give us a ta Give us an F. Let us have a couple of days extension. I said, okay. I said, I'll let you have it this time, but don't let it happen again. Now, remember now, next month, I want those papers here in time. October 30th came. 200 students came with their term papers. 50 of them don't have their term papers. So where's your term papers? They said, oh, Professor, everybody's term papers were due this week, and this week was, uh, was homecoming, and we were busy with floats and all that stuff. But please give us one more chance. And I said, okay, I'll give you a two-day extension. And you know what happened? They began to sing spontaneously. We love you, Prof. Sproul. Oh, yes, we do. I was the most popular professor on campus until November the 30th. November the 30th, 150 students came with their term paper. The other 100 walked in like they were going down the street for a loaf of bread. They were casual, relaxed. I said, Johnson. He said, yes, sir. I said, where's your term paper? He said, hey, hey, prop, you know, don't worry about it. I'll have it for you a couple days. <laughs> and I took out the black book. I said, Johnson? He said, yes. He said, that. He won't. Where's your paper? I don't have it, sir. I said, F. Cunningham. F. About that time. Somebody in the back of the room shouted out. You can guess what they shouted. What? That's not fair. Patrick, 
Did you say that? And he said, yes. I said, you said, that's not fair. And he said, right. I said, do I recall that you didn't turn your paper in on time the last time? He said, that's right. I said, okay, if you want justice, you're going to get justice. And I wrote F for both. I said, anybody else? Anybody else want justice, ladies and gentlemen? We need to understand the difference between justice and mercy. The minute you think that God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain that warns you and tells you that you're no longer thinking about mercy. For by definition, mercy is bond. God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature. He doesn't owe you mercy. As he has said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I'll close with this. A holy God is both just and merciful. Never unjust. There is never an occasion in any page of sacred scripture where God ever, ever punishes an innocent person. God simply doesn't know how to be unjust. I thank him every night that he does know how to be non-just. Because mercy is non-just but it is not injustice. And so I'll leave you with this. When you say your prayers, don't ever ask God to give you justice. He might do it. And if God were to deal with us according to justice, we would perish as swiftly as Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. But we live, beloved, by grace, by his mercy. And let's never forget it. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us for presuming upon your loving kindness, for demanding it, for being angry, when we don't receive it. Oh, Father, help us to be amazed by grace. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. When were dinosaurs created? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel. If you were asked, where did dinosaurs come from? How would you answer? Well, it's not a hard question if we start with the Bible. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 1 says God created all the land animals on day 6 of creation week. Dinosaurs, by definition, are land animals. So they must have been created on day 6. And that's the same creation day as Adam. Adding up the genealogies in Genesis, we know there were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, and we know it's been 4,000 years since Abraham. So dinosaurs were created around 6,000 years ago during creation week. Dinosaurs are only a mystery if we ignore God's word. Want to know more about dinosaurs and the Bible? Go to our website at AnswersRadio.com for free articles, videos, books, and more. You'll be built up at AnswersRadio.com. I'm going to tell you about two really bad things many Christians do that they shouldn't. If you've been on the surf for more than 20 years, you've probably heard of Paul Simon, or at least two iconic songs he penned. One is called Mrs. Robinson, and it's a real toe tap. And the other will give you goosebumps. It's called Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water. Mrs. Robinson is a massive hit, and surprisingly, it contains the lyric, Jesus loves you more than no, and the mention of God and how to get to heaven. Mrs. Robinson was made up on the spot. I just, 
uh, riffing on guitar. Now. And I had to swing around the song. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. For no particular reason. I had nothing in mind. It just came into your head? Yes. Has anyone ever said to you, Jesus loves you? So many people. Yeah, my mother. What does that mean to you? For me personally, it doesn't mean much. Saying Jesus loves you to a lost world may sound nice, but it's not biblical. Nowhere in scripture will you find any of the apostles saying Jesus loves you to sinners. When the Bible speaks of the love of God in Christ, it's always in direct correlation to the cross, as in John 3.16, as it does when it says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dying on the cross is the evidence of God's love. And you can't mention the cross without talking about sin. And the reality of sin makes no sense without the moral law to bring the knowledge of sin. So if you want to tell sinners how much God loves them, open up the Ten Commandments as Jesus did and show them the cross. And of course, he also wrote Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is a song about God carrying us over and above our daily trouble. I mean, there was a moment in time when Bridge Over Troubled Water didn't exist at all. And then there was another moment when it did, when it started to. Where did it come from? I was listening to uh, some music by a gospel group called the Swan Silvertone. There was this one song, it was, it was a very up-tempo thing, and uh, the lead singer was phenomenal, tremendous lead singer in this group. And uh, he was uh, scat singing, and at one point he, sh- he shouted out, I'll be a bridge over deep water if you trust in my name. What an amazing song. But it's important to realize that God wasn't a bridge over the Red Sea for the children of Israel. He took them through the Red Sea. He takes us into the lion's den. He goes with us into the fiery furnace, as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible says that we enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. And in that tribulation, we have God's promise that he'll be with us in those fiery trials. So why be a Christian? What's the benefit? Primarily, we saved from the wrath to come. That's what the Bible teaches. And to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Five years ago, Paul Simon said he was finished writing songs. But he couldn't stop. His latest solo album, Seven Songs, was recorded in his cabin studio. The title came to him in a dream. The dream said, you're working on, or you're supposed to work on a piece called Seven Songs. I thought, you know, I don't, I'm not even sure what it's called. And from there, I said, well, I suppose I should go to Psalms and the Bible. I have no idea what, what this dream means. It's you wrestling with mortality, with death. I've been thinking about the great migration. Yeah. One by one, they leave the flock. That's because at this age, there are, you know, friends who, who die. And when it happens, you, do, you, you think about it. But I don't know your religious information. And I'm not. No? No, I'm not religious. Who do you think is giving you the um, Who do you think that is? Oh, I don't. I have no idea. How our hearts should break for the millions like him. Paul Simon has probably sung Jesus Loves You More Than You Can Know and about God being a bridge over troubled water a thousand times. But tragically, like the millions of others who ignore the revelation of the scriptures, he's still in darkness. But why not tell sinners that Jesus loves them and that God will save them out of all their problems? What's the harm? Because that false gospel leaves sinners and their sins often disillusioned because God didn't come running like some sort of divine butler to help them in their troubles when they click their simple fingers. Instead of saying that God solves all your problems, 
We should say that being a Christian means having God with us in our trials and having hope in our death. A hope that the Bible says is an anchor for the soul in the ultimate storm we all must face. Now that we know what not to say, let's look at an example of witnessing based on what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 19. got a question for you. You see a teenage guy, late teens, he's drinking some soda, and you see someone that's spiked it with arsenic. Are you obligated to tell him? Probably. What's the obligation? Is it moral or is it legal? Uh, moral. Also oh, legal, you know. Yeah. If you let someone die, you're guilty of a crime called depraved indifference, oh, and you go to jail for that. So what say the guy ignores you after you warn him, or he laughs at you, or he doesn't believe you? Where's your obligation then? Nothing really at that point that you can do. You're released morally and you're released legally. The law would say you've done all you can do. His blood is on his own head. Yep. How do you get to heaven? I think by just morally doing the right thing in life. So you think you're a good person? I believe so, yes. Do you ever read the Bible? I, I do sometimes. What is the gospel? The gospel, off the top of my head right now, I don't remember it. Like, But I have, like, growing up, I've definitely heard it. The gospel is the good news that everlasting life is a free gift and you cannot earn it. I think you're in great danger, Justin. I've got to warn you. Yeah, I'm going to take you through the Ten Commandments to show you you can't make it to heaven on your own merit. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Have you ever killed someone? Ever murdered them? No, sir. Have you ever hated somebody? Yes. The Bible says he who hates his brother is a murderer. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Have you ever committed adultery? No, sir. Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery already with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes. How many lies have you told in your life? Probably too many to count. And what do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. What are you? A liar. Yeah, do you still think you're a good person? I'd still say yes. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small in your whole life, irrespective of its value? Yes. What do you call someone who steals? Thief. And what are you? Thief. No, you're not. You're a lying thief. Still think you're a good person? starting to make me question that. Have you ever used God's name in vain? That's the third commandment. Yes, sir. You love your mum? Yeah. Did you ever use her name as a cuss word? No. Why not? Um, I'm not too sure. Well, you love her and respect her. She's your mother. And you never do that. But you've taken the name of God, the holy name of God, the one that gave you a mother and gave you life, and used it as a cuss word to express disgust. Justin, that's called blasphemy. So serious in the Old Testament punishable by death. So here's a quick summation. You've told me, and I'm not judging you, that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous. You had sex before marriage. Yes. Fornicating, adulterer at heart, who's also a murderer at heart, who's also self-righteous, which is a sin, and saying you're a good person when you're obviously not. You're like the rest of us. So here's the big question. This is where we're going. If God judges you by those ten commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty on judgment day. Right, guilty. Heaven or hell? Is this based on this? Maybe hell? Definitely hell. Do you know the Bible says the wages of sin is death? Ever heard that Bible verse? I have not. Yeah, the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal who thinks he's a good person, but he's committed multiple murders. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. This is what's due to you. And Justin, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. Your death will be evidence to you. God is deadly serious about sin. So you're drinking iniquity or sin like water. That's what the Bible says. And with it is death. The wages of sin is death. And that's what I've got to warn you about. Let's say you're a doctor and in front of you is a patient who looks incredibly well. He's got a great physique. He works out every day and he feels fit and healthy. But you know differently. You've seen the x-rays and he's dying. He's got two weeks to live. There's a poison seeping through his system. You have a cure in your pocket. What do you do? Show him the x-rays or give him the cure? I'd give him the cure. No, he's not going to want the cure because he thinks he's well. He's fit and healthy. He's going to say, Doc, what do you give me this cure for? I'm not diseased. You're crazy. Get this out of my face. If the doctor's a good doctor, he's going to show him the x-rays, show him the poison seeping through his system, make him fearful, make him tremble to a point where he says, Doctor, I can see this is deadly serious. What should I do? And then he's ready for the cure. Now he's going to appreciate it and appropriate it. Can you understand that? Yes, sir. And Justin, because I love you, I've showed you the x-rays today to show you how serious sin is. So you'll be fearful and say, whoa, what should I do? This is deadly serious. I don't want to end up in hell. 
Does that make sense? Yes, sir. And that brings us to the good news of the gospel. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Yes. Most people have, but they don't understand this. And Justin, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He's saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone pays them. He'll say, well, you're guilty, but someone's paid this fine, you can leave. God can take the death sentence off you legally and let you live forever, all because Jesus paid that fine and his life's blood, rose from the dead and defeated death, and all you have to do, according to the scriptures, to find everlasting life is repent of your sins, turn from them, and put your faith in Jesus, like you trust a parachute. If you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? So you don't die. So you don't die. And your motivation is fear. You fear dying. And that fear is your friend. It's not your enemy. It's doing you a favor. And because I love you, I'll try to put the fear of God in you today, hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy. Because it'll make you let go of your beloved sins and say, boy, this is serious. I need God's mercy. I need, a, I need, I need to be washed in my sins. Is this making sense? Yep. You're going to think about what we talked about? Absolutely. When are you going to repent and put your faith in Christ? As soon as I get out of here. Oh, today? Hopefully. Can I pray with you? Absolutely. Father, I pray for Justin. This day he'll see sin that's true light, that it's deadly serious, and find a place of sorrow for his sins and genuine repentance and faith in Jesus. And this day pass from death to life, all because of your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. Can I give you a book I've written? Sure. Yeah, it's called Scientific Facts in the Bible, and it'll boost your faith in God's Word. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. If you've never seen Crazy Bible, you've got to watch it. It's one of my favorites. You can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. That's from Living Waters, their YouTube page. And like they say, you can watch the Crazy Bible movie on there. And thanks for listening with Cantola here on Trippy Toll Radio. What I'm going to do for you now is... I'm going to play this. When, when your affections, when your love is pointed toward the world, there is no room for the love of God. Because when your love and your affections are pointed toward the world, they are pointed toward that which opposes God. Thus, love can become sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. James says something similar in James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other. This is an either-or situation. You cannot love the world and love God simultaneously. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. 
Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Dinosaurs living with people. This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years of church compromise in six days. Yesterday we learned dinosaurs were created on the same day as Adam and Eve. So dinosaurs and man did live together. But wouldn't fierce dinosaurs like T-Rex have terrorized the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 1 tells us that originally people and the animals were created vegetarian. God gave them the plants to eat. This means originally T-Rex would have been snacking on fruits and plants. But what about those huge teeth? Well, just because something has big teeth doesn't mean it eats meat. We see that today. Fruit bats and lemurs both have sharp teeth, but they eat plants. It wasn't until after sin that creatures started eating meat. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free. Find more answers at AnswersRadio.com. Perhaps it's pornography. Maybe you just can't stop yelling at your kids or you love to drink or smoke the devil's lettuce. Whatever your besetting sin is, there's a biblical weapon. It is a stun missile that you can employ to gain victory in those moments when you are tempted to sin again. Am I going to tell you what that weapon is? No. You're going to see what that weapon is as you watch Dr. Greg Gifford from our Transform TV series reveal that weapon to Robin. She's a suburban housewife and light up a bong or open up a bottle in the morning. Watch Robin's mind get blown as she suddenly realizes what her real problem is. One of the biggest difficulties with the use of alcohol is not the use of alcohol. The biggest problem is that you're letting something else take God's place in your life. That what you're using alcohol for is what God wants to be to you. My rock and my refuge, my deliverer. That's pretty intense, huh? And it seems almost like so simple to be said, you know? I mean, I've read this scripture over and over. I've cried it. I've prayed it. Good. You know, I don't, I, I guess I haven't lived it truly. Yeah. So think of, think of the, the knowledge to the practice here that you have another God in your life. Mm-hmm. His name is alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that he's been your rock and your fortress and your deliverer, your shield, your refuge. But he's been a lousy one. Yeah. He's been a devastating one. Mm-hmm. Very. And if you continue to worship him, then what's going to take place is everything that matters in this life will be taken. The beauty of the passage is that he says, Alcohol, the God of alcohol, he's never going to do it. Drugs are never going to do it. They're never going to fulfill you long term. But maybe there's a sense in which some of what Robin has spent a good majority of her life serving is a false God. And Jesus is saying, make me the boss, Robin. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. And sobriety is of paramount importance. I don't want to undermine that. But you... There's a difference in saying I need to get sober so I can be a better person and saying I need to get sober so I can honor God. Yes. Yeah. Are you ready to let Jesus come into your circle and say, Robin, I'm the boss? Yeah. Are you ready to do that? Yeah. Yes. Good. We're never going to escape the pressures of life, and that's not God's intent. It's that 
in the middle of those pressures that we would respond in a way that's honoring to him and faithful. I want to show you something in Isaiah. Can you go to Isaiah 55? Everyone who thirsts comes to the waters, and you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This craving, this longing, this desire for relief and satisfaction, that we're searching for it in places, according to verse 2, that don't satisfy. It's mind-blowing to me how I can know the word, read the word, come here and sit here and hear how you tell it. And it's like it's like a whole different way to look at it. It's almost like light bulbs are going off in my head, you know, and things are, are connecting, you know, because I've always said, God, you're my refuge, but I've never truly, like, let them be that. Yeah, good. And so it's now taking what maybe you know or you could get right on a test. Yeah. And saying, I'm going to go to you as my refuge. Right. And not to. Yeah. Right. So now let's duplicate a scenario where the pressures are on. Maybe you got into an argument with your husband. Maybe there's family pressures from siblings. And your response may be to go to alcohol. In that practical moment, you're saying, I would like some muddy water, please. Where's the muddy water? And God, who is the fountain water, saying, Robin, you're going over there, but come to me. My ways are better. I'm better. If you're willing to follow the Lord's principles for your life, it's not that you're saying no to satisfaction. You're saying yes to a superior satisfaction, which can only be found in Him. Wow. I don't like muddy water. <laughs> That's good to hear. No, I, you know, it's it's so it's so crazy how breaking it down to so simple can make all the lights come on. That happens so often in biblical counseling. A light bulb doesn't go on. A bolt of lightning strikes people as they realize, whoa, the Bible actually explains my actions. She realized her love of alcohol and drugs was a worship disorder. And once she realized she was choosing Jim Beam over Jesus to be her rock and refuge, I'm telling you, watch this. Her life made a, this is, this, this ain't like made up for TV reality phoniness. This is Robin today. The most surprising thing about the transform process has been, it literally has transformed my life. I woke up and I put off, I put it off. That's what I learned in counseling. You put it off. You put something else on. I put off that desire to want to drink and I put on whatever else God had for me coming. And I do gardening. I like to paint. I like to write. I like to sing. I like to praise God. Um, There's so many other things that I'm able to do and just be more, more aware and more in the moment. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I encourage anybody who is wants to try this or you think that you could be a possible fit, you can be. You can be. It can change your life. It will transform you. Would you like to wield the weapon of worship in your life? Let me give you a few examples that will give you some practical help so that in the moment when you're being tempted, you are able to overcome and resist that temptation. Scenario number one, like Robin, you feel the weight of life. You want comfort. You want release. You want escape. And two voices are calling out to you. Jesus entreats you, hey, I'm your refuge, I'm your comforter, I'm your strong tower, run to me. But in the meantime, like he's sitting on the other shoulder, Jack Daniels shouts, just take one drink to cut the edge. I'll make you feel good. Worship me. To whom 
you choose to go will reveal what you are worshiping. And if you pick Jack to be your strong tower, you've made a bottle of bourbon your effective deity. In that moment, ask yourself, who deserves my worship? Ask it. Talk to yourself. Interrogate yourself. Scenario number two, your day at work, it was a beating. The wife and the kids, they're at the park, and you find yourself alone in a quiet house, out of nowhere, porn whispers, you've had a really hard day. You deserve a little relief from stress, so fire up your computer and spend some time together. And if you listen to the voice of porn petition you to partake in filth, then you're worshiping dirty pixels as you obey porn's pleadings. But if you stop, deny yourself, pick up your cross and worship Jesus, you will find the strength to overcome the temptation. Scenario three will make this even more clear. Your kids, they are having a banner kind of day and not in a good way. Usually they're naughty, but today they have been taking disobedience to a whole nother level. You hear a chorus of voices vying for your worship. One voice says, hey, my name's Peace and Quiet. If you want me, then leave those brats and that lousy husband. But then there's another voice that hearkens, I'm an Amish romance novel. Come, escape with me. Oh, wait, it's like a chorus. A third voice, find your comfort in me. My name is Cheesecake. Now, if you choose to obey one of those voices, then that has become your God. Think about it. You're worshiping a piece of food? You're an imaginary scenario? What a pathetic deity. You're running to something besides your Savior to find peace. In other words, you choose to worship an idol and not the Lord. So the next time you battle temptation, just ask yourself these simple questions. Number one, to whom will I give my worship and obedience? This thing object, this trifle, this filth, or my Savior. Number two, who do I love more, this idol or Jesus? And then follow the one who has the most affection in your heart. Number three, who always fulfills his promises to comfort, encourage, to heal, to help, to defend, to protect, and deliver? Jesus or this idol, then turn your back to your temptation and praise your God. I'm not kidding. Actually, do the worshiping. Lord, you purchased me. I love you more than this sin. Please accept my obedience as an act of worship to you. And if you want to go a step further, get ready for this. Sing worship to the Lord. It is really hard to commit a big nasty when you're singing Amazing Grace. Try it. If you would like more victory over your besetting sin, it is time for you to worship. If and you'd like to see more of Transform, you can find it somewhere on the thingy-majig here. And if you have more helpful weapons, that will encourage Christians to overcome temptation. Put them down there and discuss. Welcome to the Bible Zone, a world where people use their Bibles as much as they use their cell phones. The uh, Bible Zone bundle, it will equip you to read your Bible better, encourage you to read your Bible more, and maybe, just maybe, you won't get into fights. Academy International equips pastors at 18 seminaries around the globe. I'm convinced that for us, we send a teacher for those men in those countries to be able to effectively lead churches. They need to have training to help them understand how to interpret scripture, how to teach theology, how to model Christ's likeness because of his word in a way that is compelling. The Masters Academy International at wretched.org slash pastor. Thank you.
That was from Wretched on YouTube. That's W-R-T-C-H-E-D. And you can find them at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. Check them out there for more about them and the civil, civil counseling and transform the show that they're talking about. And thanks for listening to Tripitol Radio. Um, that's all I got for this time now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.